0: and of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. All right, whether you guys are uh, here on our campus
1: or you're joining us online, we want to say welcome to Sunridge. You might notice that uh, something's going on with my voice today. Um, I have been recruited to sing for uh, The Temptations. And I will be singing, uh, starting this morning with Papa Was a Rolling Stone. So, uh, no, just kidding. I've got that cold that's going around, and uh, it's not COVID. (coughs) Thought I'd share a little bit with you guys. Is that politically incorrect? Sorry. Anyway, um, you know, I, I bet it was just like a few years ago that Cindy and I, we started getting hooked on all these English shows. So anybody like that. I mean, the addiction first started with Downton Abbey. We got on that and then we just couldn't let it go. And uh, we started uh, watching all these other English shows like Poldark and All Creatures Great and Small. And then that kind of just expanded into like almost everything like uh, Bosch and a few other violent shows that I won't share with you because I don't want you to think that your pastor watches those kind of shows. But Anyway, uh, you know, the, the advent of all these new programs comes through uh, these new streaming options that we have, like Netflix and Amazon Prime, and so we just like, we just love watching these shows. We've, we keep a list, and you know, there's all this uh, collaboration between our friends, like have you seen this? And we just kind of keep going with the list, and there's nothing that makes us happier than when we find a series that we really like. It has multiple seasons, because that just says, that you know, like for the next, you know, months or whatever, we're going to get to just be totally love television, which is something that everyone should be able to love in their life, right? So, uh, So all those seasons are like, that's like the score for us. Well, we told you, like, you know a number of weeks ago, that as we were wrapping, wrapping up Luke's gospel, that we were going to be rolling into the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in your New Testament. And they're both written by Luke, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes here. But it's sort of like this, okay? Like, Look at Luke's gospel as season one of uh, the story of Christianity, and then Acts is like season two. And I'm studying it already, so uh, I just want to let you know that um, I don't know if there's going to be another season after that, because Luke only wrote two volumes, but there's going to be at least 18 episodes in Acts. So if you dig it, you're going to dig it. If you don't, then you know, you're just going to have to stick with us for a while and be bored or something. So why, why would we even study Acts? It's something that I've already been alluding to, that it, because it naturally follows Luke. Uh, from At the beginning of Acts, um, Luke references his former book. He says, in my former book, and he's not just trying to sell copies here of his other book. He, say, he says, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke has these two volumes about Christianity. The first volume, Luke's gospel, is about the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the second volume or season, is about his followers and what they did through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is about Jesus, and Acts is about the church. But it's still Jesus. It's just what Jesus is doing through his Spirit, through these people that are called Christians. So who was Luke? And if you were with us during the Luke series. Uh, We went through this. If you haven't, you should go back in our archives and look at the one message that we started with, why I wrote this, because we go into great depth about who Luke was. But these are all in your notes. You don't have to fill it out. But he was a physician that assisted the Apostle Paul. He's mentioned several times in Acts as being part of the missionary work that uh, Paul does. Luke never met Jesus personally, so he's not one of the twelve. Uh, disciples, but he is the only Gentile author of a book in the New Testament, which is pretty fantastic when you think about it. So he's very unique, and so as we've already said, he wrote both Luke and Acts. Those are his two volumes, and by volume, Luke um, is the biggest contributor to your New Testament. In fact, if you just take the words, not the number of books, but the number of words and content that Luke provides, uh, it's almost one-third of your New Testament. So he has more copy in your New Testament than even the Apostle Paul. His contribution then is huge, uh, not just in volume, but in his unique contribution. And that's what, this is what makes Acts so important to uh, the record of the New Testament, because Acts is a historical record of the first 30 years of the church. In fact, Acts is the only biblical record of the first century church. If you think about your New Testament, you have uh, the Gospels, which are about the life of Jesus, and then the back part of your Bible are all these letters that are either written to specific churches by different apostles or to individuals. So you have that, but Acts is the only thing that bridges how these churches and people come into the story of Jesus in the first century. So where would we be? without Acts. Is my voice bothering you yet? Okay. Last, we should study Acts because uh, Acts is our history. It's our history. All earthly people have um, a heritage. Your family has a heritage. We have an American heritage. And in our schools, we're taught about that. We're taught about the history of this nation how it came to be, and some of the significant people that are part of it. But even more granular than that, we all have a history beyond America. Um, you know, we're, we're, we have Dutch heritage, and Irish, and Scottish, and African, Asian, Indo- Indonesian, Latino, Latina, Hispanic. We have all of these different heritages that, that are so different for us, and, um, but we also have a spiritual heritage, and that's what Acts gives us. Now, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says this about Acts in regards to the heritage. The book of Acts is telling me that if I've given my allegiance to Jesus, I'm part of a Messianic Jewish sect that started as a persecuted religious minority movement in ancient Jerusalem. That's a living heritage. I love that. I always like to go to Tim Mackey for a quote if i can. So acts is more than this historical record of the church. I want you to grab that it is every christian's heritage. And why is it important for us to know that? Because our history points us toward our future. Our roots explain who we are and it tells us a lot about where we should be headed. So when we read these stories in acts about the people and events that happen in the first century church, these are our people. These are are our stories. Um, This is where we came from today, the church called Sunridge in Temecula Valley in 2022. This is who we are. So we're going to keep that in mind as we go through all of these stories that we find in the book of Acts. Now, if we are looking at chapter one through the lens of uh, modern time, we We would see that from the very beginning, Jesus is delegating the work that he has. And when you delegate work, there's an assignment, which is the what. There is the resourcing, which is the how. And there is the staffing, which is the who. So let's look at the assignment first. The difference between Luke and Acts is that Luke wasn't there for Jesus' ministry Uh, we saw in Luke's gospel that he opens up, he says, when I went to write this account for you, Theophilus, I investigated this thoroughly. In other words, I had all these conversations and researched it and used other documents like Mark and other gospels to like come up with his gospel. But Luke is a companion and an eyewitness in some cases, in Acts, with the Apostle Paul, and that these are what are called the we passages. Because in some points in, in Acts, you'll see if Luke is the author that he's saying we. So he's there for some of that. Luke is writing this later, probably several decades after uh, Jesus' resurrection. And in setting up the context of the book, he's, he's referencing what Jesus both did and taught through the key people called the apostles, that were chosen by him. And he gave them these instructions in verse 2. He gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now that phrase, give, gave instructions, literally means he gave them a command or he gave them an assignment. What were that, those instructions? What was that assignment? Well, you go back to the first volume that he wrote at the last part, the last chapter of Luke. In chapter 24, verse 45, he says, he opened their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The assignment here is to be witnesses of the resurrection, to be witnesses of Jesus. That is their assignment. And they're going to need some things in order to accomplish that assignment. That's their resources in verses three through 11. And those resources that God gives to his apostles for this assignment are both objective and subjective. Let's look at the objective resources first. In verse three, after his suffering, that is Jesus, he presented himself to them after he had been executed by crucifixion, he appears to people, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Of note here is that the evidence for the resurrection wasn't like a one-time sighting. It wasn't like a one-day thing. This is over a period, and we don't have, I believe, every every instance captured, but we have at least 11 in the New Testament. It happens over a 40-day period, over a month, so that at no time in the apostles' future would they question what they had seen. Like, did I, did that really happen? Did I really see that? There's something that scholars call the Jerusalem factor that is part of this story. It is that when Jesus appeared uh, in a resurrected body to the apostles, they are in the city where Jesus was executed. It's not even two months later. And, and it's repetitive in all these different ways and among other people, so that there's just no way to make it up because it's so close to the event. This is one reason why we, we don't see any dispute uh, from the Roman government. Uh, no, no factual uh, disputation that Jesus rose from the dead. They just said that, you know, he, they, uh, they went and stole the body, which would be entirely impossible when you have Roman guards who under threat of execution cannot leave the tomb. So Luke is showing how often and how many times and in how many different locations and situations people encountered the resurrected Jesus that's one objective truth that they can stand on the other one is how he ascended from earth to heaven in verse 9 after he said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight hid him from their sight they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So Luke is saying, not only did you have all of these appearances of Jesus in different situations and locations among other people, but also you saw him ascend with your very eyes, before your very eyes, which means that you didn't turn away, that you were watching This happened, and after you see this happen, there's this visible and tangible presence of two people who explain to you what just happened so that they reinforce Jesus' ascension. So for these apostles, as they start out in this story of the early church, they have really solid things to stand upon. They have many... Uh, appearances of the resurrected Jesus, and they have this memory of Jesus ascending into heaven, so they have this confidence that they will go forward and you know what 's interesting from this point in the life of these apostles you know in the in the in your new testament in the Gospels before Jesus resurrected they 're all doubters right they're, when Jesus is executed the, their whole faith collapses, and they have they're denying Jesus. They're hiding out. They're not bold. But after this moment, after all of these appearances and seeing the ascension, they never doubt again. Think about that. Faced with all the things that we're going to see that they face, from persecution to the challenges being on trial and in the, in the, the way that they have to travel and preach the gospel, they never, ever doubt it again. So those are the objective resources that God gives them. But he also gives them a subjective resource. They're told to wait for something. In verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised. Which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they've seen the resurrected Jesus. Multiple times. And then they're told. But you need one more thing. You need the Holy Spirit. And here it's called the you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of confusion about that, which we're going to get back to at the end. We're going to talk about it. But as Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit will empower them, they're they're confused. In verse 6, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So this has been a common thing that we saw even in Luke's gospel. The disciples misinterpret what it means for the kingdom of God to come. And they're only focused on this idea that somehow Israel is going to be freed from the oppression of Rome. And that question has to be so disappointing to Jesus after he just keeps repeating it over and over again, right? And I just have to mention something here as a footnote in regard to like end times teaching. I don't show hands, but like, I know some of you, like, you're just wired to be into that. It's not a bad thing to be into it. I just want to say that. It's like, not criticizing that at all. But people can get so into it that it gets weird. And, um, you know, it seems that there's a cycle in the Christian community that, like, someone will come along and all of a sudden, you know, people get so into end times teaching so that they're connecting. Uh, events and things to, like, what's happening today, and they're putting dates and times to the return of Christ. Can I just point out what Jesus says to his apostles right here, who were the ones that were physically with him for three years, and assigned by him to witness to the world? He tells them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Just let that sink in for a minute. And then add to that, that Jesus says in the Gospels that not even he knows the day and time. So be into it, try to figure it out, but can I just tell you, you're never gonna guess it. And the people that are telling you that they're guessing it, they're not right. You guys okay? Okay. Instead of giving them notes uh, on how to predict his return, Jesus puts them back on track on the mission, the assignment that he's given them. In verse 8, he says, but, and that but gives them something else to aspire for. You don't have to figure out all the end dates and times of my return, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. He tells them you are going to receive power, which is dunamis, it's the it's from It's the Greek word from which we get dynamite. You're going to receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses. So you have this objective truth, but then you also have this subjective resource that God gives them. Because all Christian ministry, whether you're working in the tech booth, whether you're up here teaching or you're leading worship or you're with these kids or you're sharing your faith with your neighbor or you're just serving somebody, It all relies on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So you have, the the apostles have the proof of the resurrection, but they also have to wait for this power that they will need for their assignment to be effective. And then they need one more thing. They have an assignment, they have resources, and then lastly, they need staffing. So for some reason, and we don't know why, They feel like Judas, the betrayer, needs to be replaced. And Luke gives us in chapter 1 here a little insight as to how they did it, which I think you're going to find interesting. They go to the residence where they're staying, the 11 um, of the 12, because Judas is dead, plus the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, and they're praying in verses 13 through 14. And during that prayer meeting, you can see that Peter's emerging as a spokesperson for them and a leader. And he stands up and says in verse 15, and uh, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And what's happening here is that Peter is channeling some of the psalms that David pens when he feels this great betrayal by Ahithophel and some of the other uh, betrayers, people that um, conspired against him. And David is saying it was like a punch in his gut. And you can just hear that betrayal coming through when Peter talks about Judas in verse 17. He says, he was one of our number. And he shared in our ministry And then there's what seems to be uh, like a contradiction in the Bible. So this is earmuff time. If you have children, put your hands over their ears. Because in verse 18, referring to Judas, he says, With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intensity spilled out. Remove earmuffs. (laughs) And the problem here is in Matthew, uh, in chapter 27, he said that Judas hanged himself. So how did he die? Here's my best answer for me. It's not a contradiction here, but it's supplemental information. Remember, Luke is a doctor, and he can be more graphic about uh, the condition of a corpse. And so it's possible that Judas' body fell headlong from a height after hanging or by, through decomposition. Maybe you should do earmuffs again. Uh, Or the rope broke. So, you know, the Bible leaves out a lot of details, doesn't it? But this doesn't have to be a contradiction. Peter says that we need to replace Judas with someone that was with Jesus from the beginning. So how are they going to do it? In verse 23, so they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. So they started with prayer, right? It's a good thing. And then verse 26, they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So the, when they cast lots, they, they were like these, they were like dice made out of little stones. So, This is a common way to make decisions at this time. So they pray and they roll some dice. And uh, by the way, our elder board uses this method all the time (laughs) to make financial decisions. So did they really need the 12? We don't really know. Jesus never said you have to have 12, uh, but they're back to 12 leaders. So you see, they have an assignment, they have the resources that they need, and they have the staffing that they need. And that wraps up the first chapter. So I just want to, like, in the time remaining, make a few observations that I think bring this forward to us today. So first of all, Acts one eight gives us the outline of the book and the plan for the church. Um, on my desk, um, in my office, I have uh, this book. I want to put a slide up there. It's called a visual theology. Is that in there? It's not in there. Never mind. But trust me, I have a book on my desk. It's called Visual Theology of the Bible. And then is there, is there a slide of the church expansion that we used on Friday night? Is that in there? Negative? Okay. Imagine this in your mind, okay? Just it, It's a slide that shows the incredible expansion of the church. If you were here Friday night, you saw it. How in the world... Does the church go from like 120 people to what it is today, that there's 7 billion people on the earth and one out of three would identify as a Christian? How did that happen? How did they do that? And who was involved? And here Luke shows us that there are really three, oh, slides up there. Thank you. Thank you. So there it is. From 120 to 3,000, as we'll see on the first, ti- the first time Peter preaches, which always makes me jealous. And then since then, I don't know if you can see on the screen, but these are all, these, all those little black marks are, are people. And it's just continued to our day and time. And it all starts very small in a remote part of the world in Palestine. There are three large movements that happen And and it shows us in Acts 1.8. So you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I want you to see that Jesus describes this witness, first of all, geographically. Do you see that? It goes from Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, which are two regions north and south of Jerusalem, and then the ends of the earth. But it also doubles as, as kind of like the, the structure for how the narrative of Acts goes, and it's also the strategy for the church today. The assignment is to witness of the resurrected Christ first in Jerusalem, which you'll see generally as we go through Acts is chapters 1 through 7, And then in Judea, Samaria, those regions north and south from Jerusalem in chapters 8 through 13. And then the ends of the earth, chapters 14 through 28. So the apostles, like everything we're going to read for the first few chapters, I'm going to turn this off for a second. Excuse me. Everything we see is happening in Jerusalem. And the gospel only going to people who come from a Jewish tradition. And then the gospel is going to expand beyond the city walls of Jerusalem. Um, it's going to go to Judea. And Peter is going to have a vision. And he's going to take the gospel to Samaria, which is north. And to a man named Cornelius, who uh, is a Gentile. And from there, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to come on the scene. And he's going to take the gospel on the road, and he's going to make three trips in the known world. Each gets larger, each one of his trips, with an increasing expansion in reach. So this full and robust um, presence of the gospel follows a pattern. And it's, it's the structure of Acts, but I also think that it's it's a template for the church today that our gospel outreach, our effect, begins here in our own community, in our own families, in our own neighborhoods. And as but well, we're not satisfied with that. we don't just say, okay, this, this is just our lane. It also goes beyond us in different ways, which we're going to see. doesn't mean just you and me need to travel, and eventually it goes. Uh, beyond what we could imagine to the world, beyond anything that we could ever think about or people that we could reach. And sometimes churches lose sight of this. We, we get so focused on our community that we have no impact beyond our community. And some, some, sometimes we get so focused on across the world that we miss across the street. The witness of the church requires, then and now, requires two things. It requires us to be be grounded in the truth, and it requires spirit-filled empowerment. Let's talk about truth first. Have you guys noticed that, um, how people are so glad to share their facts with you uh, today with no relevance to the actual facts sometimes? Maybe you've experienced this. What they're sharing is an ideology, often. But a witness, a true witness, has to be corroborated by the truth. That's why, like in, in a court scene, in a court scenario, uh, the jailhouse snitch is like the last person you want as a witness. You can use them, but like they're just not a reliable witness, right? And what's happening today to the church is that. Um, we're allowing cultural ideologies to contaminate the gospel. And it's causing our gospel impact to lose its credibility. And in some cases, churches are replacing the gospel with their ideologies. So that the gospel is not foremost in, in how they see their mission. And we seem to be more interested in fighting those battles along these ideologies to bring an earthly kingdom than the liberating kingdom that the gospel of Jesus brings. This is a great quote by one of my favorite intellectuals, uh, John Stott. Uh, You may never, never have heard of him, but he lived from one thousand, nine hundred and twenty-one. He passed in two thousand and eleven. He wrote uh, one of the quintessential books on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, beyond our circles, he's very famous. He said, "Power in God's kingdom is different from power in human kingdoms." The reference to the Holy Spirit defines its nature. The kingdom of God is His rule set up in the lives of His people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers. Through a gospel of peace not a declaration of war and by the work of the spirit not by force of arms political intrigue or revolutionary violence at the same time in rejecting the politicizing of the kingdom we must be aware of the opposite extreme of super spiritualizing it as if god's rule operates only in heaven and not on earth the fact is that although it must not be identified with any political ideology or program It has radical political and social implications. Kingdom values come into collision with secular values. And the citizens of God's kingdom steadfastly deny to Caesar the supreme loyalty for which he hungers, but which they insist giving to Jesus alone. Anybody like that quote? I know it was a lot. The church must keep this assignment and strategy in mind at all times. Our mission here is to help people find and follow Jesus. Our vision is is then to deepen people's faith, to bring hope to our world, and to live love as a demonstration of the gospel. And it's so easy for us to get sidetracked to to just do good works without the gospel, or to make no difference in the world, uh, but only share the facts of the gospel, or to merely become a teaching facility, or a community just to ourselves. One of the encouraging things that, uh, data points that we got out of the survey that you guys so gratefully, very grateful for all your participation in that, is that uh, the survey showed that 70% of you had shared your faith at least once in the last year. And of course, all of you have been living the gospel at your place of work and in your homes. That's so encouraging to me. The other requirement in the church's witnesses is the empowerment of the Spirit. And Luke says that the first believers needed to wait for Jesus, to be Jesus' witnesses in the world. In spite of the fact they had all this confidence of the truth and these proofs of the resurrection, they still needed one more thing to be credible and to be effective. They were waiting on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I told you we'd come back to this. What exactly is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So put your little theology hat on right now. There's a lot of controversy around this doctrine. Um, So the way I would summarize in a very simple way, uh, how, how people look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people think uh, you get more of the Spirit, and other people think the Spirit gets more of you. So if, you, if, you're, if someone who's of the view that you get more of the Spirit, uh, they use uh, language like a second blessing, and they believe the Holy Spirit comes upon us subsequent to becoming a Christian— It's often associated with miraculous things, like often is the case in acts, like speaking in tongues or being overcome and falling down or some other kind of ecstatic experience. You know, the downside of this kind of thinking is it creates the haves and the have-nots. And if you haven't had one of those kind of experiences, um, you feel left out. You feel like you're less than. And it can lead you to to like pursue an experience over over that the transformation that God wants to make in us, and it put it puts a lot of pressure on people to try and like comply with that but the other side, the spirit gets more of you uh, believes that well you get all the, you get the Holy Spirit at conversion and uh, the They often view Acts as a transitional book. You can't always build doctrine out of a transitional period like uh, Acts is. Um, But you do in Acts have believers that believed in Jesus, but they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. And uh, people who believe that the Spirit gets more of you, they focus on the teachings of Paul in the epistles and to be... Controlled or baptized by the Spirit is to not be under the control of the flesh or worldly thinking, but to be entirely under the control of the Spirit in your life. And the downside of just being totally on that side of it is that you you can get a very rigid um, you get really rigid about what God is doing in the world. So that's why it's confusing. Knowing what it means to be baptized in the Spirit is important, though, because it is necessary for these first apostles to be witnesses, to be effective witnesses in their day and time. So what's the answer, Britt? I'm not sure. Personally, I'm a more of the Spirit gets more of you guy. But baptism means immersion, It means to be immersed in something. So to be baptized by the Spirit means to be immersed in the Spirit. The same thought that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.18, where he says to be filled, to be entirely filled up, controlled by, overwhelmed by the Spirit. But here's what we do know about this controversy. We know what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit or with the Spirit. Because someone who is filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit has all control of, uh, produces something. And that's in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's the thing. Whatever your doctrine is on um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the important thing is that this part happen. Someone who's baptized by the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit. Because you can hold either view and not bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You can, you can uh, claim all kinds of amazing experiences and utterances and just be a mean person. And then you can be very rigid about your approach, and you can also be nothing like what the Spirit of God wants to bear in your life. So being baptized with the Spirit ultimately results in us bearing the fruit of His Spirit. Now if we put all that together, someone who seeks to witness to the Gospel must be armed with the truth and filled with the Spirit in order to testify effectively. So this combination of Luke and Acts isn't just, here's what Jesus did, and now here's what the early church did. It's what Jesus is continuing to do through his people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and armed with the truth of the gospel. The acts of the apostles are actually the acts of Jesus. They're just done by his followers. That empowerment hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It still comes down to having the truth of the gospel and the power of the spirit in our lives. The staffing hasn't changed. God still relies on his people to be his witnesses in the world today. And the assignment hasn't changed. God is still counting on the church to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our primary calling and goal above anything else. I'm going to have the band come up. I didn't even need to drink my water. Probably I should. But while they're coming up, until Jesus returns, the mission we have as a church, as God's people, together and as individuals and as families, is to help people find and follow Jesus. We're supposed to do that until what Paul talks about in Romans, the fullness of the Gentiles comes, like, it's like the last person is saved, or what Peter wrote in his second letter. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here's the way I think about that when I think about the mission that God has given to the church today. Somewhere on the timeline, we don't know when, that last person that God is waiting for is going to become a Christian. Think about that. And you know what I'm hoping? It kind of sounds corny. I'm hoping I'm that guy that gets to share the gospel with that last person. I mean, you you watch games, right? Like you... You, you see some, like, it's, it's like you're in heaven, only it's like you're the guy that, like, you're, you're in second place in the, I don't do golf, but, like, what's the golf thing called? Like, the Masters or whatever? And you hit a hole-in-one at the end, and you win. Or like in football, it's like it's a Hail Mary, or the game is won with two seconds left with a, with a field goal. Or you get up, and you knock this grand slam out of the park. It's three and two, and it's pandemonium. Can you imagine what it's gonna be like in heaven for that person? They're gonna be, that's that's the guy, that's the girl that did that. They they won the last person to Jesus. They were witnesses of Jesus all the way to the end, and they were the last person. I think that's gonna be so cool. The book of Acts is about these ordinary people that do remarkable things. And the f- and the reason you and I are here is because they did that. So I hope that this is just the teaser, this is just the trailer for season two of Luke's story. Because we're gonna venture with these believers, we're gonna see what they did, we're gonna see the challenges that they faced And we're going to see how, in spite of all the things that they run into, how they accept the mission that Jesus has given them to share the gospel in their community, in the region around them, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. And what I'm hoping is that because it's our story, not just history, that we recapture that vision for what God can do with us, just plain old people. That we can be Take the, the, the truth of the gospel, and we can be empowered by his spirit to make a difference in the world today so that people are in heaven because we shared the gospel with them. How about that? Well, yeah, like, yeah, I think that'd be pretty awesome. Let me pray, and then we're going to worship.
0: Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.